Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Thank you so much. Uh, you don't know how excited I am to have landed here in Chicago. It's been quite a journey. I left Seattle early morning on Friday, got to O'Hare, circled around for about an hour, and then they said, we can't land here, we have to go to Indianapolis. So we got to Indianapolis, waited at the gate there for about four hours. They then said, sorry, uh, the flight is canceled. And so ended up finding a hotel by the airport, got to the room at one o'clock, come back to the airport. Flight was delayed for two hours, got to my hotel here in Chicago. They canceled my room since I didn't show up. And I'm so grateful that the sermon today is not about patience. Because I would be the wrong person to give that sermon. But we are today talking about a very important subject. And the subject is about justice. With that in mind, I want to invite you at this time to rise to your feet as you're able. If you're watching online, we want to welcome you and we want to encourage you. Maybe you're watching from other campuses But we want to invite you to rise to your feet because in certain traditions, many traditions around the world, one of the things that people will do out of reverence for God's word is to rise to their feet. And today we're going to be reading from two passages in scripture as we're continuing our series on all the things. We'll read from Psalm chapter 7 verses 1 to 9 together in one voice and then I'll read Amos chapter 5. So in one voice, let's begin Psalm chapter 7. I come to you for protection, O Lord my God. Save me from my persecutors. Rescue me. If you don't, they will maul me like a lion, tearing me to pieces with no one to rescue me. O Lord my God, if I have done wrong or am guilty of injustice, if I have betrayed a friend or plundered my enemy without cause, then let my enemies capture me. Let them trample me into the ground and drag my honor in the dust. Arise, O Lord, in anger. Stand up against the fury of my enemies. Wake up, my God, and bring justice. Gather the nations before you. Rule over them from on high. The Lord judges the nations. Declare me righteous, O Lord, for I am innocent, O Most High. End the evil of those who are wicked and defend the righteous. For you look deep within the mind and heart, O righteous God. Now, friends, listen to the word of God from the book of Amos, chapter 5, verses 21 to 24 from the message translation. I can't stand your religious meetings. I'm fed up with your conferences and conventions. I want nothing to do with your religion projects, your pretentious slogans and goals. I'm sick of your fundraising schemes, your public relations and image making. I've had all I can take of your noisy ego music. When was the last time you sang to me? Do you know what I want? I want justice 
oceans of it. I want fairness, rivers of it. That's what I want. That's all I want. Let's have a seat. Father, thank you so much again for the privilege that it is to gather together. We ask again humbly for the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. And all God's people said, amen. It's possible that some of you might be thinking right now, why are we devoting an entire weekend to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.? Now, if you've ever been to any MLK events, maybe in Chicago or in other places, I've had the privilege of speaking at certain MLK events in several places, and I've realized that in our world today, everybody wants a little piece of MLK to somehow fit their narrative or their agenda. Now, a few years ago, I had the privilege of speaking, invited by Dr. King's family, to go to Atlanta, Georgia, to speak at Ebenezer Baptist Church. It was the best six-hour service I've ever been a part of. The only, but the best service I've ever been a part of. And one of the things that they mentioned that really confirmed some of the suspicion that I was having is that they shared that there are people today that forget or do not know altogether that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was a reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., in other words, he wasn't just an activist. He wasn't just a brilliant orator or a theologian. But foremost, Dr. King was a brother in Christ. He was a follower of Jesus Christ. And if there's anyone in the world that should say he belongs to us, it's the church. He is a follower of Jesus. In a sermon that he gave in Chicago in 1967. He gave a sermon entitled, The Man Who Was a Fool. And in this sermon, this is what Dr. King, Brother King, said in his sermon. He said, quote, But before I was a civil rights leader, I was a preacher of the gospel. This was my first calling, and it still remains my greatest commitment. You know, actually, all that I do in civil rights, I do because I consider it part of my ministry. In other words, friends, the reason why we're speaking about justice is because justice was at the heart of his ministry and the dream that God deposited in Dr. King, that dream, that vision comes from God. And God continues to speak to the church, speak to sons and daughters, speaks to you. The question that we'll be wrestling with today is, are we listening and are we acting? Are we listening and are we acting? So as we're speaking about justice, I want you to know that while justice is a beautiful thing, listen to this carefully, you and I, we don't worship justice. We worship a just God. 
That nuance makes all the difference. You see, even good things, if we're not wise and careful, can grow to become idolatrous. Generosity is a beautiful thing. We don't worship generosity. We worship a generous God. So in the same case that today, as we're talking about justice work, I want you to realize that justice reflects the character of God. In other words, pursuing justice is part of our worship of God. When you look through the scriptures, the word of God, it's not just a sporadic, occasional, something that you see in the word of God. It is pervasive throughout the word, pervasive throughout scriptures. In the Old Testament, the word justice, in its two Hebrew forms, it is spoken about over 200 times. For example, Isaiah chapter 61 verse 8 simply says, I, the Lord, love justice. It is central to the kingdom of God, central to God's character. And certainly in the New Testament, we begin to see so beautifully that Jesus embodies compassion and justice. So it's very important for you and I to know that this topic, this pursuing of justice, is not just a weekend service. It's not just MLK weekend. It's not just a secondary, a tertiary issue. It's not a clothing accessory that you wear when it's cold or hot. It is part of our identity as followers of Jesus. Listen to what Dr. King says. In another sermon, he says, quote, a religion true to its nature, must also be concerned about man's social conditions. Any religion that professes to be concerned with the souls of men and is not concerned with the slums that damn them, the economic conditions that strangle them, and the social conditions that cripple them is a dry-as-dust religion. So let's explore what that means. To help us explore deeper what justice means, I want to share some time first speaking to you about a prophet by the name of Amos, and then we'll make the connection to Psalm chapter 7. Just show of hands here. How many of you have heard a sermon on this man named Amos? Raise your hand. Not many. And that's kind of my point. You see, when we're speaking about prophets in the scriptures, Christians typically think of Elijah or Isaiah or Jeremiah. Amos is not a very well-known prophet. It's another reason why you don't meet many friends named Amos. I don't know a single friend named Amos. I know Elijah's, I know Isaiah's, and certainly other names from the New Testament. Now, in today's world, when you tell someone, hey, that person is prophetic, it's meant as high praise. But what you need to know is that during the time of Amos and the Old Testament, to call someone a prophet was a horrible thing because they were hated misunderstood, oftentimes accused and bullied. Why? Because they came with a very confronting, disruptive message. So I want you to realize that. 
Now, there's five things that I want you to understand about Amos so that next time someone asks you, have you ever heard a sermon on Amos, every hand will go up. So here's five things. Let's first begin with a little bit of history. I want you to know where we can imagine Amos embodying his life. He lived in the 8th century, and just to give you a ballpark figure, around 750 BC is when he engages in his public prophetic ministry. He lived in a very small, obscure town that I'm assuming no one's ever heard of called Tekoa. Tekoa was in the southern region. So if you look at the back of your Bible, there are those maps. Tekoa is in the southern region, about 10 miles southwest of a larger city called Jerusalem. Now, he had two jobs. He was a shepherd and he was a farmer. It's important for us to really spend a few minutes in this section because just as there might be today... There was a hierarchy of social significance and jobs during the time of Amos. And in the social hierarchy, there were certain jobs that you were considered uh, low jobs or menial jobs. And on the bottom were a shepherd and a farmer. They were folks that were out in the fields working in the hot sun. They were often seen as poor people barely living day to day, week to week, month to month. Now, The reason why this is so important is I'm not here trying to diminish your jobs, your degrees, your positions, your status. I'm not diminishing your LinkedIn profile. I want you to know that while God acknowledges those things, God's ability to use you is actually not contingent on you. God's ability, why? Because God is God and you're not. God can use, yes, CEOs, doctors, but God could also use shepherds and farmers because that's who God is. The most important thing is not so much your ability. The most important thing is another A word called availability. Our willingness to say, yes, God, yes. Our response to that question, yes, God. The third thing I want you to realize is that he begins to see injustice. Now, let me see or explain to you how that happens. As a farmer, Amos specialized in something called fig trees. And so when harvest came, he took his harvest, would go to the local Tekoa farmer's market, for example. And if you know something about business, you'll know about supply and demand. Tokoa was a very small town. There weren't many customers. So he would take his small business after the farmer's market in Tokoa, and he began to travel from town to town to town to generate business. And eventually, he goes from the southern region called Judah, and he goes up to the northern region. And as he travels up north, Amos begins to see things that he hasn't seen before. During this time, under a guy named King Jeroboam in the northern kingdom, they're experiencing incredible wealth. 
money, and opulence. On a regular basis, people are talking about how good people are doing, and the list goes on and on. But what Amos sees is not just wealth. He sees the haves, but he also sees the have-nots. He begins to see the poor. He begins to see that there are people being exploited and it crushes his heart that he realizes that religious people, believers of Yahweh, believers of God, are using dangerous false theology to explain why poor people are poor. You see, back then, if you were poor, the common thought was you're cursed by God. And this begins to grieve Amos. He begins to seethe in righteous anger. So in other words, he sees injustice. Now sometimes when we're talking about justice work, we might be misled in thinking we have to go somewhere over there to do justice work. And I think it's not just that. You just simply have to open your eyes. Maybe it's in our neighborhood. Maybe it's in your work. Maybe there are practices in your companies or in the place where you work where not everyone has a seat at the table. Maybe it's in your schools. Maybe it's in our churches. And the list goes on. Amos has the courage to see justice. And here it is. He doesn't look away. The temptation oftentimes, if if we see injustice, uh, it's too messy, this is too complicated, I don't want to get involved, I just want my life to be very convenient for me. Sometimes, I'm going to go there, it's going to be a little challenging. We might say, we love peace, we love peace, we love peace. There's a distinction between peacekeeping and peacemaking. Peacekeeping means, wow, this is working really well for me. I like this peace. But it might not necessarily be peace and flourishing for everyone at the table. Here's the fourth thing, and it's this. What does he see? Well, more specifically, he realizes that there is a dehumanization going on. Now, I know that that word might seem like a a messy, intimidating word. Dehumanization is the opposite of the core conviction that you believe in in our church. We believe that every single human being is created in the wondrous, beautiful image of God. Every single person. It does not matter if they don't look like you, think like you, feel like you, worship like you, vote like you. When God says, when Jesus says to love your neighbors, he meant to love everybody. So when we dehumanize people... We somehow degrade them and we think that there is I or others or a particular race that is more superior than others because they're inferior, they're dirty, they're cursed, and we begin to engage in practices that are justified by our dehumanization. Now let me take a broad stroke in history. Maybe some of our younger students here might be studying this right now in your books in school. But if you look throughout history, you'll realize that the core essence of sin 
treatment on others is down to this word, dehumanization. Here's some examples. During World War II and the rise of Nazism, Nazis referred to Jews simply as rats. Last year, I had the privilege of taking about 10 pastors from around the country to Rwanda to learn and to listen to our Rwandan pastors and leaders. In that group, I took a couple of our Willow Creek Church pastors along with me. And during this time, we learned that in a genocide that took place just 25 years ago, an ethnic group of people called the Hutus, called Tutsis, cockroaches, which resulted in and over a million people being killed. In the painful story of American history, you'll know that enslaved African Americans were often compared to apes or monkeys. I was reading an article in preparation for the sermon, and it was conducting a survey, a study, a research about the number of times, and I'm not trying to be political, the number of times President Barack Obama and First Lady Michelle Obama were called these words during their presidency publicly. So disturbing. In our world today, if you were to simply listen to the news that's going on in Burma or Bangladesh, you'll learn that radical religious monks, they call the Rohingya minority group, it's a very small Muslim group, they'll call them animals. Reasons why they justify their horrible treatment of these human beings created in the image of God. That's the root of it. So what does Amos do? He's so disturbed by what's, what's going on, he begins to challenge the leaders of that time. He has the audacity to go to a temple, a church called Amaziah, and he speaks to a particular priest there, and he challenges them on what's going on. He says, we as believers of God should not be exploiting the poor. We should be fighting for the poor. In that context, that's where this prophetic word that God gives through Amos. Listen to it one more time. I can't stand your religious meetings. I'm fed up with your conferences and conventions. I want nothing to do with your religion projects, your pretentious slogans and goals. I'm sick of your fundraising schemes, your public relations and image making. I've had all I can take of your noisy ego music. When was the last time you sang to me? Do you know what I want? I want oceans of it. I want fairness, rivers of it. That's what I want. That's all I want. So what is God saying through Amos? Some of you might be thinking, is uh, Pastor Eugene making a passive-aggressive attempt to criticize our building, our programs, our lights? That's not what I'm trying to do. There is a place for all of these things, but listen. If we have all that we enjoy here at this church and you exit these doors 
and worship of God, our faith in Jesus, doesn't change the way you honor and love your spouse, the way that you engage your children. If it doesn't teach us to love our neighbors, to forgive our enemies, to seek justice, to walk humbly, to pursue after godliness, if it doesn't change the way that we live, listen for this, wait, what it means is that what we're doing right now, this is all a show. It's a show. And if it's a show, let's get better lights, more smoke, better musicians, better Asian preachers that don't scream too much. That's what God is saying through Amos. Now, here's the thing. I don't want you to walk away feeling paralyzed. Like you're hearing these messages of MLK, you're hearing about Amos, and I don't want you to walk away going, uh, what do I do? So let me make that connection for you. I want to give you four things to ponder and consider, and sometimes I'll use these squares or grids to help give us a path forward. Sometimes folks call it a rule of life. And they speak about values, a path, to give us some sort of a guidance. And to make it even more accessible, I'm going to use alliteration, and we're going to use four words that begin with P. Let me first reveal the first two words. We need to be pastoral, and we need to be prophetic. The reason why I have to talk about these two things simultaneously is that sometimes in the church, in our Christian life, we tend to lean over one over the other. Now let's begin with what it means to be pastoral. In Psalm chapter 7, verses 1 and 2, this is what it says again. This is David who's being harassed and threatened by a guy named Cush, a Benjamite, and is basically threatening his life. And David says, I come to you for protection, O Lord my God. Save me from my persecutors. Rescue me. If you don't, they will maul me like a lion, tearing me to pieces with no one to rescue me. So here's David in pain, in anguish, in fear, and he comes to God. Why? Because God is his pastor. God is his shepherd. God is his protector. So one of the most important things that the church must lean in is that may we never forget our commitment to be pastoral, to care, to remain tender-hearted, to remain soft, to listen, to move to the hurting, to mourn with those who mourn, to pray for the hurting, and the list goes on and on. May we always say in our hearts, in our prayers, God, would you break my heart for the things that break your heart? In other words, don't stop caring and don't stop loving. Now, why is this so important? Because we live in a culture today where there's so much news, so much inundation of information, it's really tempting to simply hide. And one of the most important things for us is that we have to keep showing up and keep caring. That's the first one, is to be pastoral. The second one is that may we never relinquish our call to be prophetic. Prophetic. 
Listen to what it says in verse 6. In verse 6, it says, Arise, O Lord, in anger. Stand up against the fury of my enemies. Wake up, my God, and bring justice. To not relinquish that our God loves justice. To ask God to be involved and not simply to ask God, but to participate in the work of justice and reconciliation in the world. Now listen to this. To be prophetic means that we're willing not to be timid, but to be bold and brave. To speak up, to speak truth. And listen, you and I are never going to give a speech at the Lincoln Memorial, but maybe the most important time to speak truth might be at a board meeting, might be at a neighbor's meeting, maybe it's at a school PTA meeting, maybe it's at the dining table of a family reunion where someone says something that's dehumanizing. And we have to stand up and say, hey, that's not godly. We have to always maintain this balance to be both pastoral and prophetic. Sometimes as we lean into the prophetic call of our lives, I hear Christians say, hey, you're you're a little bit too loud. This is making me feel way too uncomfortable. This is way too messy. That sounds like you're being too political. Both matter. I suspect that when Jesus flipped the table, someone might have said, hey, hey, you're disturbing the peace. You're making me feel uncomfortable. Why did you put all the coins on the floor? Now, simultaneously, it's possible that we can elevate the prophetic and ignore what it means to be pastoral. You see, both matter to the heart of God. I'll give you an example. If you are being prophetic and you're speaking truth and yet you have no love, it's possible that we end up dehumanizing the very people we think we're speaking truth to. I hope you're following me here. And the Bible says that when we do things without love, we're like a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. You think you're making harmonious music. You're not. Both matter to God. May we hold on to love, know that God is our good, good father, our good shepherd, but also lean into this call, the messy space, the hard space to speak up, speak truth. To speak up for widows and orphans. I love what the Bible says, friends, in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 17. It simply says, learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. This is not just for Amos. This is not just for MLK. It's not just for those who are in their 40s or 50s. It, impact, it involves our youth, our teenagers. It involves every single one of us. Here's the third thing, is that it has to be personal. Because you could attempt to do pastoral and prophetic, hide behind a pulpit, type away on your laptop, and it's never a personal conviction in your own life. In our culture where it's almost nouveau and fashionable to be outraged and angry at anything, at some point you got to look in the mirror and say, what are you doing? 
Listen to what it says from Psalm chapter 7, verses 3 to 5. O Lord my God, if I have done wrong or am guilty of injustice, if I have betrayed a friend or plundered my enemy without cause, then let my enemies capture me. Let them trample me into the ground. In other words, David, his prayer, his song takes a dramatic turn. At first he goes to God for pastoral encouragement, but then he places himself and says, is it possible that before I say, woe is you, is there something in my own life, in my heart that I need to bring before you? That's what it says in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5. The prophet Isaiah says, woe to me, I cried. I am ruined for I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Another way to put this is a quote from Leo Tolstoy, who happens to be a Russian author most well-known for writing a novel called War and Peace. He was also a Christian, a follower of Jesus, and he once said these words, everyone thinks of, challenge, everyone thinks of changing the world, but no one thinks of changing himself. I mean, I hope that convicts all of us in some way or the other. So it has to be personal. We have to live it. We have to embody it and not just be a salespeople for our goals or agenda. Here's the last thing. It has to be practical. In other words, friends, we can talk, we can pray, we can discuss, We could have worship services, we could have guest musicians, we could have guest preachers, but if it's not changing the way that we live, I'll go back to what Amos is saying or what God is saying through Amos, this is all a show and here it is. I don't wanna be part of a show. I wanna be a part of what God's doing to usher in, to build and to flourish the kingdom of God in this world. So friends, as you exit, consider how might God be stirring in your heart? How is God convicting you to embody mercy, justice, humility in your life? Friends, I want to invite you as you're able, can you rise to your feet right now? As you rise to your feet, We've had a full, full service, beautiful things. But what we haven't had a time to do is to just process and to sit in silence. And it might be a little uncomfortable, but I want to encourage you, invite you to lean in in a couple questions I want to ask you to consider in your life. If you could just close your eyes, if you could bow your heads, I'm going to guide us in a time of reflection. With your hands, I want to invite you to just put out your hands, palms up. This is you and God. What guilt might be on my hands? 
Is there a place where I have caused injustice or a person to whom I've been unjust? God, will you bring to mind a time where I have been unjust by ignorance, by action, or by inaction? Forgive me, but teach me. Take this time to listen. Brothers and sisters, just gently turn your hands over, palms down. God, is there a place where you can use me, these hands, this voice, these feet, this body, to bring justice? Is there a wrong I need to make right? A person I need to befriend or defend? Is there a place where I've been silent where you need me to speak? Let's take this time now to listen. God, we thank you for your amazing grace. Thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for the guidance of your Holy Spirit that gives us insight. Our hands open to you. We ask that as you forgive us of our sins, times where we may have dehumanized others, We now ask for the courage and the conviction that can come from your Holy Spirit to use these hands, to use me, to use us to be light and salt to the world, to be agents of hope, peace, and justice. God, we love you. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, amen, amen. (laughs) Friends, as you leave, we rejoice in what God has done in this space. But please remember, worship continues as you exit those doors. God bless you.